just that idea of like you're going to hit like in anything that's like anything worthwhile you're going to hit a point where it's like you want to stop where it's just horrible and you don't want to be doing it anymore but that's not the point that you stop that's just the point that your body is telling you like okay like i'm hitting that edge and pushing past that is where you find that like next level welcome to for the long run podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. Through personal and professional connections in the running world, I have the privilege of getting to know some amazing athletes. I've always been fascinated by the psychological aspect of running, and this podcast is aimed at exploring this and much more. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Summer is here and Gooder has the slickest shades around for only $25 and $35. They don't slip or bounce and they stay on my face way better than more expensive sunglasses do. If you'd like to support me in the show, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooders and head over to Gooder.com and get 15% off your entire order with the code FTLR. That's 15% off at Gooder.com, code FTLR. Your face will thank you. Welcome back. I have Molly Seidel, like title, here on the podcast in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first podcast I've done in Cambridge. Wait, really? I think so. You haven't crossed the river yet? I, I guess not. It was funny. We had to do a shoot for Puma yesterday, and the people doing the shoot were from out of town. They were contractors with um, Runner's World, and they wanted to shoot only in Boston. But then, uh, yeah, they were they were trying to get shots in the Mass Ave region. They're like, which direction should we point? I'm like, we have to make it clear, like, if I'm running from Cambridge or if I'm running from Boston or whatnot, and like kind of making a joke. And they're like, wait, are people going to care about that? I'm like, only people from Cambridge would. Don't they know that the best shot is running in Cambridge looking at Boston? That's what I think they did. Well, it was also pouring rain the whole time. So it was this like- This was yesterday? Yeah. So we weren't going to get like the money shot of yep. the city regardless. Yeah, I looked like a drowned rat by the end of this. It was like five hours just in the pouring rain. Yeah, torrential downpour yesterday, hurricane incoming this weekend. So mm-hmm. a lot of rain. Yeah, yeah. So my last weekend in Boston for a little bit, glad that it's going to be pouring. Well, you're going out with lots of humidity. So just a, like a nice thick <laughs> Yeah, hug. It's, it's I just wanted to keep it exactly like it was in Sapporo. So yeah, just stay in my lane, keep my hair nice and frizzy. Nice. So before we dive too far into it, the hardest question I might ask is the next one. Are you ready? Oh, God. Who is Molly? Who is Molly? Ooh, Molly is, I guess I'd like to say Molly is not what my Instagram <laughs> is. Um, or I guess that uh, it's not only what my Instagram is. I think a lot of people tend to think we've had this conversation quite a bit of like people will see my Instagram and kind of think that's the entirety of me. And I think that's probably the most outgoing version of myself. But yeah, I think at my core, I'm just, I'm a runner. I'm a pretty big nerd as are most runners, I think. But uh, yeah, I don't know. At the end of the day, I'm just someone who really enjoys running, really enjoys drinking beer with friends, is pretty socially awkward sometimes. (laughs) But on the whole, I, I love what I do. That's awesome. I think that's the dream. Like do what you love, love what you do. Mm-hmm. We are definitely a socially awkward lot who loves to drink beer and run mm-hmm. and then talk about it. As we sit here with 
a nice little variety pack. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know you brought all the different ones. I love that you brought the, uh, so we've got some athletic brews right in front of us here and they made a special IPA for the Pan Mass Challenge, which is a charity bike ride that they do across the state. And so I actually have not gotten to try that one yet because it usually sells out super quickly. So you can have that because I don't like IPAs. <laughs> Wait, you don't like IPAs? I don't like IPAs. How are you a New Englander? That, that's what I said. I decided last week, I was like, I was in Colorado a friend was like, this is an IPA you should try. And I was like, fine, I'll try it again. <laughs> and I tried it. I was like, nope, not an IPA guy. See, I can see that though. Like the, the bitterness isn't for everybody, yeah. but that's what I used to not like IPAs either. And it was coming out to the East coast and having like juicy style, New England IPAs. That's what, that's what hooked me. Got it. I'm a sour guy. So I just saw oh, that they released see, this. <laughs> I'm not a sour person. I'm so sorry. It's Okay. <laughs> So you are not originally from here, mm -mm. but what brought you to Boston? So I grew up in the Midwest, grew up in Wisconsin, went to school in Indiana at Notre Dame. And after college, I had the opportunity to run pro and I joined a professional team out here in Boston for Saucony. And so I moved out here in the summer of 2017. Yeah. So basically came out here for that. And then even after I left the team, I loved the city. I loved being out here. My sister eventually followed me out here. And so I was living with her and yeah, just kind of stayed and you've really dove into the Boston running scene here. You do Cortado Club, all yeah. sorts of uh, all sorts of things. I was doing that regularly a couple of years ago, and mm -hmm. I was hoping to get back to it this trip with a little altitude boost, but mm -hmm. didn't happen. But we'll have to make it back. But uh, now you're off to Flagstaff. You bought a place in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about why Flag? Why mm -hmm. why uh, why out there? So basically, over the last five years or so, I've spent typically like four to six months of the year in Flagstaff. I live there part-time. Uh, so I, I flip back and forth between Boston and Flag. As I've progressed in my pro running career, just figuring out like one, like I, I love Flagstaff. I love the community out there as well. And then realizing just how truly important altitude training is for me. I feel like I, I respond very well to it. I enjoy training up there and it is a great spot to live and train. I've shifted more of my year to Flagstaff. And as I was trying to decide where I wanted to be a little bit more firmly established, part of it was, is that the housing market in Boston is just unreasonable. <laughs> like literally the most ridiculous yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. I can't pay $700,000 for, for a, a one bed. bed. Yeah, yeah. For a one bed apartment. <laughs> um, so realistically, I was like, well, like I could realistically buy a house right. in Flagstaff or a, a townhouse that I, I live in. And it just made a little bit more more sense. And like, I'll rent in Boston and I'll, I'll own my place and flag. And then in the times that I'm not there, I can rent it out to people coming in because people are constantly coming right. in and out of flag. It's been nice being able to have both of these spots in my life of like being in flag up in the mountains, really hone in and focus on training. And then in Boston with friends, it's energetic. It's a really cool running scene out here. That's totally different from flag. Yeah. And yeah, it's a nice like balance in my life. I feel like we're living parallel lives because I'm doing the same in Boulder mm -hmm. and renting in Boulder, but looking to buy and renting in Boston mm -hmm. and like stopped looking to buy because it was like, <laughs> I don't want to spend that much money here when you could buy a house and have a pool and like mm -hmm. all that stuff there. Yeah. I mean, Boulder is expensive though, too. But not compared to Boston. Not compared. I mean, Boston, other than New York or San Francisco, 
Boston is just about as expensive as it gets. Yes. So everyone out there is like, wow, it's so expensive. And there are a lot of people from Colorado and Arizona that listen to this podcast. So hello. Um, but context is everything. I was mm-hmm. talking with Emma Cortez about buying property. She and Noah were looking and she was like in Indiana and the Midwest, like we can own a house for 150k i'm like you could buy a parking spot yes i know people always say that though it's like in my like where i grew up you can buy a mansion for a hundred thousand dollars and then it's like the joke of like my hometown it's like hillbillies so yeah it's like yeah it is all relative like i love wisconsin and I could probably get more for my farm. money in Wisconsin. Yeah, but I'm not ready to move back to Wisconsin yeah. right now. So given this is a running podcast, not a real estate podcast. let's. Wait, let's, this isn't a real estate I podcast? Know we, I dabble in all sorts of things, but <laughs> let's dive into the running aspect of it. Um, do you remember your first run? My ever. first run ever? ever? No, come on. <laughs> You're like the only person who doesn't. So, I don't okay, know. The That's first- the thing. Like I, I enjoy running. Like I was kind of just doing it from a young age. Like we had 150 acres of trails up behind our house and I just like go up there. I don't think I recall like the first time I ever like intentionally like went out to go run. I remember my first race. I remember running in gym class, but. So let's talk about the first race. What was that? The first race was at, um, I had just found out that the, um, so basically like I did like CCD, like young, like Catholic education. Cause I didn't go to like a Catholic middle school. My mom was all about that. And so through our church, they had a track team and my school didn't. So I was like, mom, can I run for the church's track team? And she was like, fine, I'll take you to the meet. Not understanding why the hell I wanted to do it. And I was so nervous going into this first track meet. I literally like I didn't even make it to the line. I like threw up in the bathroom (laughs) and I went home. And so that was my first race. Wow. Yeah. So like great start to the career. And then I was like, mom, I want to go back next week. She was like, you're really going to make me drive you all that way again. Like you better bring a vomit bag. (laughs) Yeah. Like my mom is like incredibly supportive, incredibly caring. But also she's like very realistic too. She's like, I'm not going to drive like a half hour for you to not go race. Like if I'm taking you, you're racing. And so I went and then I won the meet or (laughs) won the race. And it was like, okay, cool. Like I am pretty good at this. So you go from not racing, puking in the bathroom, winning the meet, and then to the Olympics. Yeah. That's that's the the exact transition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Congrats. That's like a pretty awesome progression I mean just like a week right if you if you read any of like the think pieces written about me I feel like uh that's probably what you would think too actually with the stop at the bar is the coffee shop in the interim (laughs) and then I just decided to take a two-hour coffee break and go run a marathon right two and a half two and a half yeah (laughs) you needed the warm-up so there was a bit in between winning the meet doing the coffee thing and doing the olympics thing Mm mm-hmm was it ever like, this is the goal or is where are you very much process oriented? I think it's funny because like, there's been a lot written and said about like this little like card that I made when I was like in fourth grade, where I said that I wanted to go to the Olympics and win a medal. And it's funny because there is a big difference from when you're like a kid and you're dreaming of this thing, but it's all very ethereal and it all seems very far off. And then the actual process of effectively 20 years of working and reaching towards that and going after the smaller goals in the interim where there is this high level dream goal of like, 
Olympics, Olympic medal up above it. But it's not like every single day I'm going out and saying, I'm doing this right now in order to win an Olympic medal. I don't think my brain works like that. It's, I do love just the day-to-day process of training. And I've always had this in my mind of like, this is the highest goal for me to get to. But in the now, I need to focus on what I'm doing today to make me a little bit better for tomorrow. I love that. So fourth grade, Molly writes Mm -hmm. Olympic medal. You put your pen down and you look up and Molly of 2021 is standing there. Mm -hmm. What does that Molly say to fourth grade Molly? Hmm. I... It's hard because I'm trying to spin this like as positively as possible. No, but make it real. Like it doesn't need to be positive. I think older Molly would tell younger Molly, it's going to be so much harder than you think it's going to be, but it's going to be worth it. Because it's like, I think when, when you're younger, even hell, when I was in high school, like dreaming of this kinds of stuff, you have this image in your head of what it's going to take to get there. But it's like, you can't imagine just the the difficulty, the things you're going to go through. I don't think when I was in high school, I could have imagined just how low the lows would get, but then you can't even imagine just how high the highs are. And it makes that achievement so much more worth it. And I think that's the hardest part of staying in the sport. It's- We're staying alive. Yeah, we're staying alive. It's just like, it's going through just like the day-to-day challenges and sticking with it. And then even though when you are in your absolute lowest saying like, I'm still going to keep going after that. And so I think that's probably the message that I would try to give to anybody trying to stay in it is like, it's going to be so hard, but it's going to be worth it. So don't get scared when it is hard. I often say like the highs wouldn't be as high without the lows. Mm -hmm. And it's like often the Delta between the two that like makes the journey worth it. And it's Mm -hmm. like very cliche to say, but it makes sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. if life was perfect and awesome all the time, like Mm -hmm. it's like winning the Olympics every day, like it would probably get boring, right? Yeah. And I think like, even in my own career, I think like, if I look at just like the high points that I've had, if it just went from like high point to high point to high point to high point, yeah, I don't think I'd appreciate (laughs) it very much if I just went straight from like Foot Locker Nationals to NCAA Championship. Like the NCAA Championship wouldn't be that worth it, I guess, in my mind. Or like, I wouldn't appreciate how cool that is if I hadn't had the two years of like barely running injury, very much low point. And same thing from NCAA to pro of like- I went through a period of like a lot of years of struggle in between there. And so it's like, yeah, it's, I think those low points also teach you the things that you need to learn in order to get to that next point. Because I think you develop a sense of like, yeah, mental toughness or just like resiliency in your, yeah, in your sense of self to be able to like, okay, this is how I break through the next level. So I was just in Boulder for a retreat led by a guy named Jake Tuber. He's got, I don't know, 12 years of schooling about cognitive development and Mm -hmm. professional development. And on Saturday night of the retreat, right before Matt Fitzgerald spoke, or right after Matt Fitzgerald spoke, he talked about this concept of like a corkscrew and you're like, life is this, I'm like butchering this, this analogy, but in essence, it was, you're always on this corkscrew. And at any point you're either going up or going down, Mm -hmm. but the corkscrew is always ascending. So your, your highs keep getting higher and your lows keep getting higher Mm -hmm. and you keep progressing with like what you can handle. And and you just like keep going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard it put that way that like, 
you must accept that you're going to have the highs and the lows, but they're all part of it. And mm-hmm. I've made the corkscrew motion 50 times now for those yeah. following along at home. But mm-hmm. I think that the way you're describing it is perfectly analogous to that. It's like, it's all part of it. But mm-hmm. in that moment, it's hard to acknowledge that like, it will get better, right? Mm-hmm. When things truly suck, like this will not last forever. And I think it's a very, it's a very Zen idea that like nothing good lasts forever. Nothing bad lasts forever. You just kind of like, I don't know. When I was like at one of my lowest points, I had a friend like give me a card that was basically like exactly what I needed at the time where it just said like, when you're going through hell, keep going. (laughs) And it's true. It's like, it's a country song. Yeah, literally. It's like, all you can keep doing is just keep moving forward and just accepting like, okay, this sucks, but I'm going to keep going because that's the only option that you have. So I ran rim to rim to rim in the Canyon two years ago. And I said like almost exactly what you just said, like there is no other option, keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. And so this was with like 10 K to go and 6,000 feet to climb. And I was like, I had hit the lowest point of my, like the lowest physical point I'd ever experienced in life. And the options at that point are black and white. It's like you either keep moving or you call a helicopter and get like carted off the, (laughs) off the incline. And I recorded this video of myself saying exactly this to the camera. I was like trying to distract myself for, from how much pain I was in. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I want to remember this moment because I've never been, I've never struggled this much physically as I am right now. And I was like, that's the secret. Like keep moving forward. This has to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just even like, I have a good friend, Billy Hafferty, who's he's a triathlete and he does ultras. And yeah, not to hammer this point home, too much, but he, he was doing an ultra kind of in that same situation. And he was really hurting. He was like considering like stopping or not wanting to do it anymore. And someone he was running with was like, this isn't the part where you stop. This is just the part where it sucks. (laughs) And so it's like, just that idea of like, you're going to hit like in anything that's like anything worthwhile, anything worthwhile, you're going to hit a point where it's like, you want to stop where it's just horrible and you don't want to be doing it anymore. But that's not the point that you stop. That's just the point that your body is telling you like, okay, like I'm hitting that edge and pushing past that is where you find that like next level. And that means a lot coming from Billy Hafferty because this man does 200 mile bike rides before work sometimes. He's a psychopath. (laughs) He's like my favorite psychopath. I see him all over the country and it just like makes me laugh every time I run into him. I know. I feel like I'll see his Instagram. I'm like, wait, he's just in like Utah. Yeah. All right. Of a sudden. Yeah. A very funny guy. Very good guy. So you talk about the moment where you don't quit, but where things get hard. Mm-hmm. Where was that in the Olympic marathon for you? Probably going into that final lap. So we had like six miles to go. We're hitting that like 20, 21 miles. And I had been pretty aggressive in that first 20 miles or so. I was I was up near the front. I was actually making some moves and trying to like push the pace a little bit as we came down through the steps on the backside of the course. It kind of like zigzagged down. And so we're going into this final lap and it's starting to like really hurt and it's starting to get real hot. And I had seen Mike Smith. So he's the Galen's coach. He's the fiance of one of my best friends, Rachel Schneider. And so he was handing me my bottles on the far side. And he just yelled at me. He's like, stay with the move, be ready for the move. And so knowing that like, you're starting to like go into this hole, it's really starting to hurt. And the hardest part of the race is coming. That's a, it's a mentally tough spot. And just knowing like, okay, the next probably 30 minutes are going to be 
some of the hardest 30 minutes of my life. Was that the most discomfort you'd ever been in? It, I don't know. Cause Atlanta was so truly difficult that it's hard to compare things to that. It was, it was difficult in a different way just cause it was such different conditions and your body just feels like it's being cooked from the inside. And so once Paris and Bridget started to move and, and Sal Peter, uh, who's in third at the time started to move away. That was truly one of the lowest points of the race where I was like, I'm getting fourth. I'm going to miss out on a medal by one spot. And I saw them moving away. And I think the hardest part of the race, and I had practiced this with John a lot in training of not getting discouraged of being like, okay, you might get fourth, but fourth is still great. And keep working as hard as you can. You don't know what's going to happen the remaining part of this race. And so this was probably three miles to go that I'm just like, mentally, I'm just like, man, I just worked so hard the whole time and I'm going to miss out by one spot. But just being like, okay, just stay in it, stay focused, keep working and see if you can make it back up to them. And all of a sudden I noticed Sal Peter was coming back to me and all of a sudden I'm passing her with two and a half miles to go. And then all of a sudden she's gone. Like, I don't know what just happened. And I found out afterwards that she started walking, but at the time I thought she was right behind me. And so that's when it was like just getting through that one mile period of like the range of emotions and just how tired I was and being able to mentally stay on it of like, okay, you're dealing with disappointment. You're dealing with exhaustion. You're dealing with frustration because they're knocking you all over the course here. Like just stay in it. How did you rectify the disappointment while continuing to move forward, right? The reason I ask is this is something that I struggle with. So at Falmouth, I went out hard and this like way of racing that I've taken to lately is like ride the razor's edge Mm -hmm. and get cut 90% of the time, but like 10% of the time, it's going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a good strategy or not, but I've been doing it and sometimes it works. And when it doesn't work, it's that disappointment of like, well, what if, what Mm -hmm. if I had been a little more conservative or what if I were to be stronger mentally and Mm -hmm. could hold this. So how do you, how do you go there and how do you handle that? Yeah, I think it really, I think it's very context dependent. So I will say like, I don't always race like how I raced at the Olympics going in. It's a very specific situation where it's a championship style race. Time doesn't matter. Time doesn't matter. This opportunity comes once every four years or or five or five or three, I guess now, but Going out and like, there are races where I want to be more conservative and it is more time-based. And so I kind of modify my effort there. But then there are races like the Olympics or heck with the Olympic trials where you go out and you ride that razor's edge because going into the Olympics specifically, I saw no point of being conservative and going out and trying to get 15th to 20th. I was talking with Zane Robertson the day before and he actually, he had a pretty good race plan of metal or hospital. (laughs) So I figured I might not go to that degree, but like, why not just go and try and shoot for something big? Because nobody expects anything of me regardless. And I don't know what I can do. Like, I'm so inexperienced at this event. I'm still kind of trying to figure out like, where are my limits? So might as well just go out with that front pack and do it. And if, if you go out and give everything you have in this very specific situation where, where when you have nothing to lose and you give every ounce of your effort, I don't think I would have been like if I had gone and shot for the moon and couldn't have gotten it, but knowing that I literally left everything I possibly had on that course, I think I would have been like, I wouldn't have necessarily been disappointed with that effort. 
because it's just like, okay, I've found my edge and I wasn't able to move past. I think if I had gone out and hadn't, like, I frankly was really disappointed in myself after London because I did not feel like the time that I raced was indicative of my fitness. And I left that race feeling like I had a lot left in the tank. And so I was frankly really disappointed with myself. And that's the hardest thing for me to process. I'm okay with getting beat, but I'm not okay with knowing that I didn't give everything. I've had a lot of conversations with Kara about this, Mm -hmm. about riding that edge. And she's like, show me an athlete who rides the edge and gets cut. And I'll show you an athlete who has a breakthrough Mm -hmm. like they could never imagine. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'd pick that athlete 10 of 10 times because of their self-belief, because of their, I don't know, I don't want to say like being a dreamer, but like Mm -hmm. shooting your shot and putting yourself out there. And I think that it sucks the, you know, 80 or 90% of the time when it doesn't work. But But I I think we also need, especially for younger listeners, I think we need to specify of the difference of like being a dreamer and going for it and being dumb. Right. Because I have had both of those. <laughs> I have had races where I've gone for it and like trusted in the fitness and the training that I've been doing and my ability to race. And I went for it. And I've had times where I was just an idiot and I paid for it. Can you name a time like that? Uh, Gate River 2018 where I I was racing Molly Huddle and Jordan Hesse. And we went out at, so this is 15 kilometers, so a little over nine miles. I was a 5K, 10K specialist at this time. I had never run a 15K race. We went out in 450 for the first <laughs> mile because I was like, I'm just going to try and hang on to Molly <laughs> Huddle. And we go out at 450 for this first mile. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the danger zone right now. And I have eight miles to go. And yeah, that was truly one of the most painful races in my life. And I was still able to hang on to third, but like that was dumb. What'd you learn from it? I learned that I guess don't, when, when your fitness isn't super great, don't go out in 450 for a 15 K <laughs> with Molly Huddle. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's that you have to be realistic with where your fitness is. Like if you think you can reasonably hang and like compete and go for it, go and shoot your shot, but you got to be willing to deal with the consequences too. And sometimes those consequences are literally being lactic for eight (laughs) miles. And it's like, and that's still very fresh in my brain. And so it's like, go out, trust in yourself, trust in your abilities, but also like you need to be able to like have enough self-awareness to know like, okay, this is too much for me to be going out. Yeah. The mind is one thing, but like your physical abilities will, will limit you at a certain point. And I think that's the, like, as you race more and you learn that you learn where your abilities are. I think it is harder for younger racers and you're still figuring that out and kind of figuring out like, okay, what is a reasonable amount of effort for me to be giving? I think too many people err towards the conservative side of things and they're scared to push, but then like, yeah, you don't want to be dumb with stuff. Because everybody knows that person that like sprints in right. the first like 400 meters and then you don't see him for the rest of the race. You're like, okay, like, okay, asshole. Like, I watched whatever. a bunch of high school boys start running mags mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago and it was exactly that. It was like, okay, they've gone out way too fast. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're doing. And they had the sag wagon pick three of them up. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny to see. Yeah. Because I guess, and that's like, I'll use the example of like my races in London versus my races in Sapporo. Like Bridget Koskai was in both of those races. 
I felt like I could go out and run with Bridget Koskai in Sapporo because we went out a lot more conservative and it was a race that suited my racing style a lot. Whereas in London, she was going out at basically world record pace. I'm not dumb enough to think (laughs) that I can go out and run that. It's like when the conditions are right, I'm willing to go out and like shoot for the moon there. But if Bridget had been going out and running like her 214 pace at this race in Sapporo, I'm not like cocky enough or yeah, like I wouldn't try to convince myself like, yeah, no, you can definitely hang with her. No, it's like when the conditions are right and you feel like, okay, this is going to be a stretch, but I'm going to go for it. Nice. Thanks again to Gooder for supporting this episode. I have a few different styles of shades and I've been loving them on runs or while at the pool. At 25 bucks a pop, you can leave a pair in your car so that you'll never be without some shades. You can feel good about your purchase too, as 1% of Gooder's annual gross sales, not profits, go directly to environmental nonprofits working towards making our world a better place. If you'd like to support me in the show, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooder's and head over to Gooder.com and get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off at G-O-O-D-R.com with the code F-T-L-R. Your face will thank you. And now back to our conversation. So a question I've been wondering ever since we scheduled this approximately two years ago. (laughs) I've just been all over the place. I'm glad that we finally got to do it. Yes. um, The question is, what does success mean to you? Mm. And I'm really glad that I'm asking this now versus... I guess success on ago. an individual level, on like high. What is success level. to Molly? What is success? What to is Molly? a successful Molly? I think, the very least, a lot of what success has meant to me lately is being healthy and mentally happy. And I know that sounds cheesy, especially like okay, I'm not like. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I'm too high level with this, and like success for me at the end of the day is about like. Sometimes it's just about beating people. Like I am like, okay, I'll say straight up like, yes, I want to be mentally happy. I want to be healthy and like living my best life and whatnot. But I also like don't want to obscure the fact like I am a highly competitive person. So so my coach's wife or Megan Roach talks about crushing bitches. Okay. I was just talking about this last night with my friend, Julie Hanlon. She just read um, this book where they talk about like taking people's souls. Yeah. Is that, what is it? It's the Goggins guy yeah, yeah, yeah. who so, says that. So Megan is a, is an elite runner, coach, physician, all these amazing things. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, sometimes I just want to crush bitches. Yeah. I mean, before indoor nationals, my senior year, um, Matt Sparks, who's my college coach, still very close with him. He was never one for like inspirational speeches. And he came up to me and I thought he was like starting to get kind of like talking a little bit as if he was going to get inspirational or whatnot. And then he just kind of leans down. He's like, Molly, these bitches aren't your friends and just walks away. I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Cause that is kind of how I approach racing. Like I, I don't know. I almost have like this alter ego when I race. I feel like in my normal life, I am kind of like, I'm goofy, fairly funny and like kind of self-effacing. When I step on that line, like I'm a mean person and I will like, I will not give an inch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing. I almost feel like it's funny to think back of like my mentality during races, because like, I just have a much more aggressive approach to that. So I feel like success for me, like at the end of the day, yeah, I do want to go out and I want to run as hard as I can. And at the end of the day, like I, even if I'm not necessarily like, even if I'm not winning, I want to make people work for it. Like I'm going to make you bleed to beat me. (laughs) 
So that's the thing is like, if I can go out and give my maximum effort and just like race to my full potential, I feel like that is success regardless of where I end up. So that's the running side. Mm -hmm. You started off the answer talking about the life side with Mm -hmm. happiness and whatnot. Talk to me more about that. Yeah. I think just because I have dealt so much with like very difficult mental health issues that like success for me is living a, like a healthy lifestyle mentally and physically. And like, for me, it's kind of like being able to find that place where I do have like a calm mind because like when you live with OCD, it's just constant. I think people don't realize just how difficult it can be on like a day to day, just being okay with yourself. And that's the thing that I struggle with the most is just like having that sense of like peace with yourself. You never feel at peace. What are the tools that you use to help be at peace or help find that peace with yourself? I've tried to be better with like mindfulness, I guess, of just like taking time to like step back, breathe, reflect on where I am. And I've gotten a little bit better with it. Being around friends, when I'm with people, it's easier. Um, I can kind of get out of just the endless cycle of like, spiraling that is my own head. I've gone back and forth on like different medications, like based on like where I am and like my training cycle, um, those will help, but it is kind of like finding what works because you don't always necessarily feel mentally sharp when you're on stuff like that. And yeah, just different techniques, different methods here and there. I don't know. It's hard, man. It's, it literally is just like a constant struggle. And yeah, I think everyone kind of assumes like, oh, you'll win an Olympic medal and then everything will be okay and peachy keen. But it's like, I have to stay on top of this shit like constantly. And especially now, because it's like, it is really hard coming down from the Olympics. It's hard having such a focused goal for a year and a half and everything in my life has been geared towards that. And now it's like, Luckily I have New York coming up and I have that bill to focus on, but like these two weeks, like the break period, it's difficult when you're not running a lot and it's stressful with a lot of like now media stuff and pressures in a different area. Yeah. I have to really work to stay on top of this. So you talked about medication, you talked about therapy, gratitude, mindfulness. I think that just normalizing that and like you didn't like lead into that. It was just like part of the conversation. And it's really Mm -hmm. cool to see it just like becoming normalized. Like Mm -hmm. I saw a psychologist when I was like starting in third grade and I was taking antidepressants and Mm -hmm. like Prozac and Ritalin, like all of it, obviously like I was in third grade nobody was talking about this Mm -hmm. at the time, but like, I imagine if I were an adult at that time, nobody would have been talking about it either. Yeah. I mean, hell, even as recently as 2016, when I was like inpatient treatment, I didn't feel like I could talk about it then. I wasn't ready to talk about it then. But I feel like over the last couple of years, especially over the last year, whether that's just from COVID and the stress of that and people being a little bit more willing to talk about not being okay, like it's just been kind of this like, yeah, watershed moment, I feel like for mental health of people being able to be like, this is something that a lot of people deal with. I'm good friends with Amelia Boone and I've talked with her at length about this. And she's like, people message me all the time about like, thank you for talking about this. So I feel, here's someone who's like successful by conventional standards Mm -hmm. and accepting and same with you like you're both accepting that like it's okay to not be okay Mm -hmm. and for people who like might not be in a similar place career-wise or professionally or whatever 
I feel like there's a lot of stigma around like asking for help. Mm -hmm. And so people like you, people like Amelia are doing incredible things to like say that it's okay and you can struggle. And I think, as you said, like what COVID highlighted is that like everybody is walking around just like this close from absolutely losing their shit at all times. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all just like, we're all just in it. And mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, people joke about like, people say, you don't know what people are going through. Like you walk down the street, everybody's living their own life, their own story and their own like shit that's going on in their head. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people thought that like everyone else is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you realize that everyone is just as much of a shit show as you are, like, I feel like that is kind of a moment where you're just like, okay, like this isn't as weird as I think it is. A lot of people go through this stuff. And so, yeah, I think it is just that like destigmatizing, like being able to talk about it, being able to like seek treatment for it and, and start working towards that because it is an active thing that you have to like work towards. It takes hard work to deal with these kinds of things. And if you're able to acknowledge that and talk about it, then it makes beginning that work a little bit easier. So we talked about what you would say to Molly of fourth grade. What would Molly of today say to Molly of 2016? Oh, get your shit together, girl. <laughs> um, no, I, God, it's really hard. Cause like Molly of 2016 was the worst version of myself. And it, it's frankly pretty hard for me to like think back to that and think back to the person that I was because it's like I not only was I like mentally struggling, but I had just it was like all the worst parts of myself came out. The the isolation, the anger, the like pushing away from people. I had just become a shell of myself. And so I don't know. It's because like, especially in 2016, I, I didn't want to listen to the people around me and, and what people were telling me that I needed to do. It was only when I hit absolute rock fucking bottom that I was able to finally see like, okay, you got to like, you got to change something. You got to get help. I think what I would want to tell Molly of 2016, because Molly of 2016 was so scared that going into treatment and going and seeking help for her mental health and for her eating disorder would ruin her as an athlete. Like I thought that was the end of my career there. And realistically it, it could have been, I think just like have hope and like have hope that you'll get through this because like more so than anything I've ever been through those couple months from July of 2016 to September of 2016 were the hardest of my life. And so I think just like trust, let go and have hope that it can get better than it is right now because you are at absolute rock bottom. I think that trust, hope and believe that it can get better is like a guiding principle that mm -hmm. like everyone should. Yeah. Well, and I think more than anything, especially as runners, we have this sense of like wanting to maintain control of our surroundings, maintain control of our bodies, of our training, of, of just life. And at the end of the day, nobody has control over <laughs> anything, anything at all. Anyone who says they do is lying. Anyone who says <laughs> they have control over their life Everything. is yeah. kidding themselves. Yeah. And so I like at that point, I just wanted this sense of control. And, and that's what eating disorders are about. It's trying to maintain control when you feel out of control. And I needed to learn to just let go and not try to like, 
I was so worried about going into treatment because I was like, how am I going to, how am I going to race if I have to go into treatment? And my therapist was like, girl, like (laughs) you are never going to run again, let alone race. Like you need to just like forget about that right now and just like live in the moment and realize where you are. And I'm glad that he was really hard on me with that of just like, girl, like we're not talking about racing. We're talking about just like your heart not stopping tomorrow. So I needed to just like learn to let go of it all and just be like, we're just going to ride this wave. I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. All I need to do is get through today and make sure that I'm doing today what I need to do to be healthier and straight up alive tomorrow. That's back to what we're talking about in the Grand Canyon or Mm -hmm. at the end of races. It's like one foot forward, keep showing up, keep moving. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's like a, a theme that keeps showing up for you, but also for a lot of people in terms of like, mm-hmm. I've done this podcast 180 times now. And like, there are a lot of commonalities and consistencies. And what I've found is I love talking about struggle. And I, because not because I like talking about your problems, I want to know, mm-hmm. like, I want to share that with other people because the people who are listening are struggling. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling. Everyone's struggling. And so hearing the ways that people get through it, I find to be motivating. But what I find to be most interesting is that it's so consistent how people get through it. You just get through it. Yeah, I know. It really is. It's like, there's no like magic solution. There's no like book that you can read that's going to fix you. It's just, you kind of fumble your way through it. And I don't know. I feel like my career has been just like this weird sense of like, failing upward of just like the corkscrew. Yeah, exactly. It's the corkscrew or just of like, yeah, nothing that I'm doing is like all that special or whatnot. And like hell, half the time I'm just kind of making it up as I go. And then it's like, you just kind of figure it out as you go along. Definitely. So looking forward, fast forward five to 10 years, Mm -hmm. what are you really proud of? Mm, I'm trying to think like looking back on a career or life. Or life. I guess I am at the very least, like right now, I think the thing that I have taken away from my running career more so than even just like the success and stuff, it's the people that you connect with and like the opportunities that I've gotten to connect with people. And I guess like when I was a kid and like seeing, seeing women that I looked up to so much doing incredible things made me want to do those incredible things as well. Like I watched Dina in the 2004 Olympic marathon. Kara Goucher. I was the biggest Kara fan girl. Um, I still am. Um, and like Shalane Flanagan, I got the chance to meet her when I was in high school. And like, it was such a impactful moment for me. I feel like becoming who I am of just being like, this is someone that I want to be like. And then hell, Desi is just like, I feel like personality wise, she's like someone that I just like share some whiskey. Oh yeah. Like just our mutual love of like drinking. (laughs) But yeah, like I feel like seeing her and being like a pro runner can be like chill as fuck and still like still a really good runner. And so it's like learning from these women and being like, you kind of mold your personality around what your heroes have done. And then you kind of just like figure it out along the way too. I hope that I've been able to set an example in what I've done that some, I don't know, some person who's in, in middle school or high school right now is like, Hey, like I see what she's doing. And that makes me want to be better and act like that. I hope they learn from some of my mistakes <laughs> because I've made a hell of a lot of mistakes. Don't go out like a rocket in four fifties. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. But yeah, I hope that at the very least, like it influences somebody else to pursue greatness in their own life someday and live 
a life of integrity and at the very least, like feel comfortable with being themselves, not feeling like they have to do a certain thing in order to achieve success. Yeah. Maybe more than anything than that. Cause like, I definitely am kind of unconventional for a pro runner. And I hope that shows people like you don't need to fit into a box to be successful. Yes. Grayson Murphy comes to mind there as well. Like mm-hmm. do whatever makes you happy and then do more of that. Mm-hmm. I started asking this question. I think the first time I asked was Vanessa Fraser last March or April. And she didn't, I, I, I would have expected an athlete at that level to say, make the Olympics or blah, blah, blah. She didn't. She said, get better and like, keep getting better. And I kept asking this question and professional athletes kept saying these like very esoteric high level, like, I want to get better. I want to meet a lot of people. I want to improve others. Mm -hmm. I want to contribute to the team. And so I was like, is this the trend? Like, is this Mm -hmm. going to be the, the answer that these high level athletes keep yeah. Well, I think it's so funny too, because I feel like as pros, and I've noticed this amongst my friends who are pros and peers, that we can be very, very esoteric. I feel like we work on like this spectrum of like top level of like overarching esoteric. Like I want to get better. I want to go towards these high level goals. I want to improve myself as a person. But then we also work on this very minute scale as well of like, I want to be that bitch in front of me. Like that's literally what <laughs> that's it the, is. But that's yeah. the point. Like you can't, you can't have your main goal be crush bitches all the time. Cause then if, what happens? If you operate on that kind of intensity and I've found this in my own life, if you operate on that kind of intensity and drive constantly, you will burn the house to the ground. <laughs> like you just can't be on like that all the time. So you have to vacillate between these two extremes of like Zen, esoteric, high level thinking. I just want to like be the best human that I can be. And I want to literally crush everyone around <laughs> me. But the point is, the point is you can perpetually be successful at the former and you can't always be successful at the latter. Mm -hmm. So when you're not successful consistently at the crushing other competitors, like where does the motivation come from? Whereas if your motivation and your like entire process is around like the experience of getting better or the experience of being a runner or the experience of being a human Mm -hmm. and contributing to the greater good of Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. You can win every single day and your wins never get boring. And I think it's just, it's a much more sustainable way to live. I think even, especially after just this past two weeks or so, I think everyone assumes, like people keep asking me like, oh my God, you must just be on cloud nine. You must be like, this must just like make everything. And yeah, so like, I am very happy with how the Olympics went. It was, it was awesome. (laughs) But I think people overestimate how much these, like these- It's a data point. Yeah, like that's a data point. And that data point is like, it's really cool and it's cool when it happens and it is very fulfilling, but it's not like I'm thinking about that like 24 hours a day. It's like these things happen and- move on isn't the right term, but it's like grow. It happens. You grow from that. And then you kind of go back to your normal set point of like, okay, I want to keep working. Like this was a cool thing that happens, but it's a step. And it's just another step because if you just either dwell on that success or only think about like the goal that you have, like in the future of like going towards that next thing, you need to be able to find that peace in between the two. So it's not like, I'm just like, like I wake up today, intense. like touch the metal and like start. Yeah, the day. No, like it's super cool holding the metal, but at the end of the day, it's a metal. Right. Like, and this is just another race. I think that's what people will sometimes forget. Like, yes, the Olympics is a big, cool thing, but it is just another race. I just happened to race really well on a specific day. I don't think that says any like 
huge, like grand thing about me as a person. Like it doesn't change my opinion of myself. It's just like, cool, that happened. And now I'm going to keep working towards this high level goal that I have. So Scott Fobble said, if you don't define yourself by your failures, you shouldn't define yourself by your successes. Mm -hmm. And so he said exactly what you said, like marinate for 48 hours, Mm -hmm. move on. Yeah. And I think that's what people like people have that rule of thumb of like, oh, when you have a bad race, you can whine about it for 24 hours and then you move on. And I think the same the same should go for successes. You shouldn't be just like freaking dwelling on your successes all the time. That's no way to live either. It's just like you need to be a person like at ground level that you refer back to and things can happen throughout your life. So whether it's a negative thing or a positive thing, I don't know, you always kind of go back to that set point. And what are your core values? What is your bedrock? Because it's like, Nothing's as good as you ever think it is. Nothing's as bad as you ever think it is. It's that. just like, go back to your equilibrium and that's where you operate. Yes. I could talk about this for hours, mm-hmm. but I think you've got, you've got to get off to Puma. That I do. <laughs> so I think one or two more, more lighthearted questions. <laughs> Have you found a coffee shop in Flagstaff that is oh. as good as Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a Dunkin' Donuts in Flagstaff. Is it as good as the one here? I think their cold brew is pretty, pretty universally great. Yeah. Um, I have to say for hot coffee, I do not do Dunkin' for hot coffee. Flag actually is... I feel like incredible in its amount of breweries and coffee shops. My go-to is Kickstand Cafe because they have incredible breakfast sandwiches, which I'm just always searching for the next great breakfast sandwich. Also great coffee. And then Tourist Home is the slightly bougier one that everybody who comes into town to visit, I feel like they're all like, you have to try out Tourist Home. I'm like, okay. like Fine, fine. It's basic, but it's still really good. Nice. The Dunks near me in Boulder is as good as any dunks in Boston. And Mm. I realized that like very early on, I was very excited about that. (sighs) Yes. But do you have like the angry, angry Southie cashiers yelling at you? It's served to me with love and- and See, then it's not dunks. They got to be salty (laughs) if if it's a real dunks. Great point. Uh, maybe I should go in very angry and see see what happens. Take that attitude. Yeah, portray. You need to put out the kind They're of energy mirroring. that they you need want to. Back. Yeah, I need the the Southie hospitality. You need to walk in with a socks hat. <laughs> you need to request your iced coffee double cupped in styrofoam. You should probably be swearing. Screaming, yeah, swearing, screaming about how much you hate the Yankees on speakerphone. On speakerphone. Yeah, I feel like this is this is what you need to do. Amazing. I'll give it a go next week. Uh, Molly, thanks so much for taking some time to chat and Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see you out there. Thanks, John. This is great. Of course. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next time on For the Long Run. And in the meantime, happy trails. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too. This podcast and the accompanying music has been produced by Brian Walters of Single Track Sound. For the Long Run's logo was created by Vanessa Wolf of Sterling Wolf. 